Welcome back to the Alts Podcast. I'm your host, Horatio Ruiz. We bring you industry leaders and creators to give their insights on the rapidly changing and exciting world of alternative assets. Opinions expressed on this podcast by the host and podcast guests are for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Podcast hosts and guests may maintain positions in the offerings discussed in this podcast. The intro song, Fishing for Pets, is written and composed by Alan Goldscher from his latest release, Live at the Lakeview Lounge. Hi again, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Today we are talking about meteorites with a return guest, Mendy Uzilu. We first spoke to Mendy in January, and if you haven't listened to that episode, I gotta say, you should go back and listen to that conversation. Our first chat with Mendy is one of our most downloaded episodes, and for good reason. But for today, we're taking a deeper dive into meteorites. We're gonna talk about Mendy's experience at the Tucson Gem and Mineral Show in February, some trends he noticed, his thoughts on the fractional lunar meteorite on Rally, and so much more. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Mendy. All right, guys. So we're very fortunate to have uh, Mendy Uzilu again uh, as a guest. Last time he came on and he really gave us a, a great history, a great kind of background on meteorites. So good to have you back, Mendy. Thank you. It's uh, wonderful to be back as well. When we left off, we were talking about you know upcoming shows, uh, next things that you were going to do, and we we you talked about going to the uh, the Tucson Gem and Mineral Show and m- kind of getting some some uh, insight on on what was happening in, in the collectible space in terms of meteorites. Could you talk about that trip and and what you saw out there? Absolutely. So there's a couple of uh, big shows um, around the world uh, for gems, minerals, fossils, natural history sorts of things. And the Tucson Gem and Mineral Show uh, that happens in late January, early February is one of the biggest, if not the biggest, uh, in the entire world. What's kind of cool about it is, of course, you have everything from lapidary equipment to fossils and, of course, uh, and incredibly high-end gems and minerals. But you also have, obviously, meteorites. Uh, there's probably 10 or so dealers that consistently show up every year and set up uh, for the show. So it's always a, a great place to go and reconnect with uh, old friends who are either there displaying their, their meteorites or, of course, uh, collectors and fellow meteorite aficionados who are visiting. So it's always a good time to go there. This year's show, I would say, was very lightly attended. There were not as many people as I was uh, expecting. And I don't have any numbers to back this up. This is just purely uh, observational on my part. But it it did seem like there were a lot fewer people, uh, visitors, even compared to last year. However, the the quality of the meteorites uh, that uh, were being presented was as high as ever and certainly incredibly interesting. So for anybody that's interested in uh, any kind of natural history collectible, I'd strongly recommend going to the Tucson Gem and Mineral Show. And of course, uh, you know, pushing for my favorite hobby, I'd certainly would encourage people to go visit uh, some of the meteorite dealers and hold a meteorite from the moon in your hand as those would be available there. 
So I don't know if I really answered your your question, but uh, hopefully that kind of gave you a, a flavor of it. One other thing I'd like to say is that uh, in years past, there was sort of a main venue where where a lot of the meteorite vendors uh, went to, and that was the Days Inn Hotel. I think part of the reason uh, this year that perhaps I didn't see as many people is that that particular venue shut down. And so a lot of the vendors kind of spread out within uh, Tucson area and had to find other venues. So it was a little bit more more spread out than it's been in the past. And perhaps that impacted uh, the perceived attendance. That's interesting. Any other kind of ideas why it might be sparsely, not sparsely, I shouldn't say that, but why it wasn't as attended as before? Uh, you know, the first thing that creeps up to my mind is is COVID. But any any other things like within the industry or or anything that you might think of? No, I mean I think you pretty much hit the nail on the head. Um, COVID is still something that is keeping a lot of people from uh, going on normal travels. One dynamic that was interesting, and I don't know if it was the same this year as it was last year, but the people that showed up last year. The anecdotal evidence that I heard from some of the people there uh, at the shows is that those were the really serious collectors and they spent a lot of money. So uh, there were fewer people that were just kind of looking around and the people that did show up were the very serious buyers. So in terms of um, the success of the show... And of course, I don't have the numbers specific as to what each meteorite dealer sold or didn't sell. But I, I would say that certainly the people that showed up were the serious people that, that spent money. So what, what did you see that was being sold? Any kind of items that, that's, that stuck out or anything that was in, in higher demand? Let me answer the first part of the question, and I'll, I guess I'll get to the second. Uh, I think one of the coolest things that, that uh, I saw, uh, and actually I got to see it uh, literally firsthand. I think as we spoke about before, I'm the president and founder of the Global Meteorite Association, and uh, we held a party in Tucson, and the members that showed up to the party, one of the members brought a, um, I believe it was a nine or 10 kilo lunar meteorite. So, you know, we were all holding it up above our heads like a basketball and having fun with it. But yeah, it was kind of cool to hold in my hand a 20 pound moon meteorite. And uh, that certainly generated a lot of excitement. And uh, we had a lot of fun with that. Uh, what was also kind of cool and serendipitously, one of the people in the meteorite community who was not a member and just happened to be there also, she had brought out her telescope. And so it was kind of cool to go from holding the moon to looking at the moon through the telescope. So that that, that was just a, a fun little experience. So here's what happens every year at the show. Meteorites fall literally all the time here on Earth with equal distribution, whether it's in the ocean, the Antarctic, Africa, U.S., wherever. But only a few of them are large enough that we can go out and hunt for them and collect them. So there's always the classics, like somebody will finally sell uh, a piece of uh, a big chunk of a meteorite. They will uh, sell that 
the new owner will slice it up. And so all of a sudden there's new material that's available of a classic meteorite. And of course, like I just mentioned, there will always be uh, what, what we call our new falls, meaning meteorites that fell within the last you know, 12 or so months that uh, these particular meteorite dealers will bring to market and make available to collectors and, and other dealers uh, as well. So that was kind of cool. Probably uh, one of the more interesting ones is uh, the meteorite called Winchcomb. It's a rare carbonaceous type of meteorite that fell in the UK. I believe it was uh, early last year. And so so very little of that material is available to collectors. Um, and that was due to the conditions at the time of the fall, which was you know full-blown COVID restrictions in the UK. And so it was really hard for uh, hunters and uh, enthusiasts to go out and hunt for the meteorite. But anyways, that was, uh, I think, one of the more notable new meteorites that, that I saw out there. That's really cool. Yeah. And I'm actually looking at some pictures of it right now as we talk. You know, you mentioned that dealers bring these new meteorites to market and they, they slice them up, right? And, you know, I'm, I'm wondering, is that the standard way of collecting meteorites in terms of trying to get, a, you know, your hand on one if you can't buy the entire thing, right? Because I guess by, by slicing it, it makes it maybe more affordable, more accessible. Or is there a preference to kind of preserve the meteorite? as it is, you know, rather than slicing it up? Yes. <laughs> Next question. Uh, of, of course, I'm, I'm joking there, but yes is in fact the answer, uh, it, you know, or I should say the answer is D, all of the above. Let's, let's break that down a little bit, okay? In the world of other collectibles, certainly in art, nobody would want to buy a one centimeter square of the Mona Lisa, you know, after it got cut up. The same can be said about certain uh, minerals or, you know, other collectibles like fossils. In some sense, meteorites, I think, is, is somewhat unique in that you don't need to maintain the integrity of the piece as a whole in order for it to be still collectible. There are some times when that is highly desirable. So as we talked about before, uh, sometimes meteorites, due to their travel through the Earth's atmosphere, will develop some really interesting, I'll call them artistic characteristics. And when they have a, a sculptural shape or an interesting, some interesting features, if you cut those up, then it's like cutting up the Mona Lisa. But there's a lot of meteorites where what's really of interest is on the inside. Another thing that's important to keep in mind is that in order to get a meteorite classified by a recognized institution that will tell you not just if it's a meteorite, but whether it's a lunar meteorite or carbonaceous or any other or an iron of a specific type, you have to cut some of it to be analyzed. And again, I think this is a pretty, pretty unique characteristics of collecting meteorites. So the, the concept of cutting a meteorite is sort of pre-built into the hobby. Now, some meteorites fall and there's only one piece found and other meteorites 
fall and they create what's called a strewn field where you have you know large pieces on one end and smaller pieces on the other. And this happens when the, the, the body enters through the atmosphere, it breaks up and all these individual pieces then fly in all different directions. So there's a lot of different characteristics to, to meteorites, but it is not at all unusual to uh, get a slice of a meteorite or what we call an end cut, meaning it's a natural on one side and smooth and polished on the other. But I think this is also, I think what makes meteorites so darn interesting is that it is by being able to do that, you make meteorites accessible to just about everybody within any budget. And you can own incredibly uh, beautiful and scientifically important meteorites or historically important meteorites. You can have your own piece of it and, and not have to be the one that owns the entire thing. So as always, you asked a short answer and I gave you a long-winded answer. No, that's, that's um, you know, last time you mentioned a couple of, you know, famous or popular falls and I'm looking right now at uh, Imelec. And it's so interesting how, you know, when this falls, you probably can't really see the inside, right? But when you slice it up, you get such a, like an array of colors and different, you know, uh, shadows it opens up the meteorite, right? It makes it almost like more attractive, if I can say that. Well, that's exactly right. So uh, just going back to the analogy of the Mona Lisa, you know, if the Mona Lisa was all covered up all the time, you'd never see what was underneath the cover. And with some meteorites, like I mentioned, I mean, you really do have to lift, lift off the cover uh, to be able to peek inside and really appreciate its natural beauty. Imilac is a find, and it's a find of a type of meteorite that we discussed before called a palisite. And these are a favorite of, of meteorite collectors uh, and even just people who appreciate science just because uh, you have these uh, transparent olivine crystals that range in color from brown and yellow to green and sometimes other hues as well within that color palette. And you really get to appreciate the internal beauty of, of that meteorite because light passes through it. You know, some people have described it as a, a natural history stained glass window. And, and I can't disagree with that description because it really is beautiful. The meteorite itself would still be quite beautiful and would have some aesthetic characteristics if you did not slice it up. But certainly with meteorites like palisites, cutting it up is where you really expose that inner beauty. I was wondering if, if you could talk a little bit about the current market. And, you know, we analyze all these different assets. And, you know, within every asset class, you have, you know, certain types that are doing better than others. You know, so if you're talking about sports cards, some sports cards are going to do better than others. And then it might change, you know. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Like I know last time we we, we got into it uh, with meteorites as investments. And my question is, do meteorites work the same way like in an economy like we are in now where there are fears of a recession, we have inflation. And so do you see that there are more people going out in the market, selling their stuff, maybe at a rebate so that then they can get some more you know liquidity? Does it work that way? Hmm. I'm really trying to just pause here to provide you a thoughtful answer. Okay, let, let's just start 
with a very basic uh, caveat. If uh, you are planning on retiring off of uh, your meteorite collection, it can be done. Uh, I just don't recommend it for the faint of heart. You know, it's not a liquid uh, um, a liquid asset. It's not easily disposed of, and certainly with meteorites, it's still I would I would call them a a small niche market. Of course, I'm trying to do my share to grow that, but there's some things that some truths about the meteorite market that will never go away, and thus, uh, as long as you have a a functional economy, meaning uh, you know during quote unquote normal times, and even right now, I would call this normal times, where there's no you know war or uh, any kind of uncertainty within our country. Obviously, the geopolitical conflicts going on right now are destabilizing for a lot of things, including meteorites. However, having said that, here are the the absolute truth. There was a time when uh, museums would trade some of their meteorites in their collections, especially if they had like a large amount of them. And remember what I said, a meteorite can be sliced. So what they would do is they would trade some meteorite in order to expand their collection uh, of other meteorites that they would, under normal circumstances, not have been able to afford or acquire. And though this still does happen to some degree, it is drastically less than it was five years ago, 10 years ago, and certainly 20 years ago. So these truly are museum specimens by definition. Uh, those are the ones that will forever hold their value uh, because you just can't get them anymore. Meteorites are a finite resource, and now you've taken a finite resource and made it even more difficult to acquire. So one of the trends that I've seen and, and continue to see is that these real museum specimens continue to go up in, in value. Those are specimens that uh, it probably is not a good idea to cut those up, especially if you have documentation uh, that comes along with it, like a museum label, and you would want the weight of your specimen to be properly documented and reflected as the same weight on the specimen card, just that keeps the, the history and the provenance of that specimen with the documentation intact. And that's certainly highly prized by, by collectors and what I would call meteorite investors. There's always a new interesting fall. The, the prices are all over the place. When a meteorite falls, typically it'll go through what I call a, and what other marketing slash, I guess, economists would call a bathtub curve where the price is high. If there's a whole lot of it, uh, more comes to the market, the price craters, then it stabilizes. And then when demand dries up, uh, the price goes back up. So every kind of meteorite will have its own dynamics and it's all, you know, supply, demand. I mean, you're just your basic economic factors will, will drive the price up. What's interesting, of course, is there is 
the geographic preference. So had that meteorite I spoke about that fell in uh, the UK, had that fallen, let's say, in North Africa, the price would have been dramatically less. And that is, so, you know, if you collect meteorites from the United Kingdom, this would be a top meteorite for you to acquire. And because there are so few of this particular type that fell, the price of it was far in excess of what it would have been had it fallen in the Saharan desert, for example. So like any other collectible, really understanding the subtleties of the market and the dynamics are critical to making uh, a good financial decision. And that's why I also always uh, advise my clients, buy what you love. Let me guide you to say, to kind of merge what you love with what makes financial sense. And like that, you get the best of both worlds. That's so so uh, interesting. So you're basically saying that the, the same exact meteorite, its value on the secondary market or on the market will be determined a lot of times by where it falls. Yes. Just the fact that it comes from, from the UK rather than North Africa makes it rarer because of where it landed. Right. So part of the reason is where the money is. The people that are collectors, there's a whole lot more of them in the UK than there are in North Africa. So for them, it's like, well, I want meteorites that fell in my country or my my near my city or whatever. So, and the UK, from a weather standpoint, is not all that friendly to meteorites. It rains a lot. These, Especially this kind of meteorite that fell, probably there'll be no traces of it left after about three to five years if you were to find another piece. Whereas the Sahara and North Africa, the weather is very favorable to preserving meteorites. So whether you go today or two or three years from now, you know, that meteorite will still be there. So it's not just uh, geographic exceptionalism. Some of it just literally has to do with, you know, the weather uh, and the terrestrial conditions in that area. But as with anything, you have to follow the money. There's a lot of hunters. There's a lot of dealers in North Africa, but there are very few collectors. Gotcha. So we talked a little bit about that there are falls all over the world. And so, you know, I, I went online and looked at some recent falls. You know, there's a couple in Canada. You, we mentioned one in, in, in the UK. When these things happen, when you have a fall, are you plugged into that? Like, is there like a, a call for for meteorite hunters to join a search and kind of say, hey, there's going to be 10 of us going out to Canada. Want to join? Is there a mobilization among the community? There is. And like with um, anything else, you have uh, cliques uh, or groups of people that, you know, they like to go out and and do things together. Uh, Usually what will happen is certainly on, on some of the Facebook groups, there'll be a posting, hey, there was a big, bright fireball Somebody will then say that, okay, we've analyzed the direction of the fall. We've triangulated where it might have been. In fact, one of my friends, he works at NASA and he runs a program called Galactic Analytics. Uh, Long story short, what he's figured out how to do is to use weather radar uh, that when it's accessible, he's able to analyze the data 
and see where a possible strewn field might have taken place. And that helps the hunters determine where is the, the highest probability of finding meteorites. His name is Mark Fries. Uh, his work has been really critical in helping identify where something fell and, in fact, leading to uh, significant recoveries. This, there's also uh, what are called fireball networks around the world that, uh, through video, uh, will help triangulate where something fell. So the tools are getting a, a lot more sophisticated. And what that has helped is now uh, sort of the democratization of going out and hunting for meteorites. What typically happens, though, is you know a meteorite falls, uh, the news reports on it, and you know people who might not have ever considered going out and hunting for a fall uh, will go out and and hunt for meteorites because it's it's fun, it's 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 really exciting, um, make a lot of new friends. Very likely, you're going to walk away finding nothing and getting skunked, uh, which is why. When I go on meteorite hunts, I treat it as a literally as a vacation and a time to hang out with my friends. And the bonus is finding something. But there are meteorite hunters who do this professionally and uh, will go out to, even to dangerous locations to go and hunt for meteorites. I prefer to hunt for meteorites on my computer screen and through my network of friends than, than doing that. Can you give me some insight on that? Like when you, that, that intrigues me. I gotta, I gotta ask the question, right? Like what would that be? Like going into a, a dangerous location? Uh, is it the country? Is it just kind of like the, um, you know, the restrictions that, uh, going there are some meteorite hunters maybe even risking their lives doing that for the chase. Hunting meteorites is as much of a addiction as it is to collect meteorites. Just the, um, the risks are a lot higher. I mean, I remember there was a meteorite that fell in Turkey not all that long ago. And, you know, the the hunters, they were Western hunters went out there and, you know, they were reporting hearing gunfire in the background and seeing smoke plumes and stuff like that. So not every hunt is like hunting in the UK where it's, you know, beautiful, pastoral, and really safe. Like I said, meteorites fall everywhere. And by the way, dangerous can also mean uh, unbearable weather conditions. I remember in the Sahara, there was a, a, a fall of a rare type of meteorite. And unfortunately, a person died from uh, heat exhaustion because it was so hot. So it's, I mean, it's not without risks, for sure. And wherever there's a financial motive, people are willing to risk sometimes too much. My personal feeling is, is that I have a family, uh, friends, you know, ch a child. I'm not going to put my life in any kind of danger over what, at the end of the day, and you know how passionate I am about meteorites, but at the end of the day, it's a rock, and I value my life and safety far more than that. But that's my personal decision, and in, in no way making a judgment call on on what other people do. That's good points. Like with anything, right? The excitement is is always going to be there. You know, I, I ran into a, a story uh, in preparing here, Mendy, and uh, I don't know how easily this would be, but 
there's stories about how they found some dinosaur fossils that seem to have maybe come from the day of that giant impact that, that killed them off. Right, right. And they're even saying that there are parts of the, the asteroid impactor, they call it, like parts of, of the, the asteroid that actually is responsible for the extinction of the dinosaurs. And to me, I'm thinking to have that in your possession, whether you're a museum, an institution, or an individual, that's got to be something, huh? Like owning a, a part of the asteroid that, that basically, you know, changed the course of, you know, of Earth's, you know, evolution. Is it possible for that to still be preserved? I, I, I mean, do you have any insight on that? Uh, so I did not get a chance to read the article. I just saw the headline. So what I'm going to uh, proceed to say is speculation on my part. You know, one of the things that's wonderful about meteorites is the intersection of meteorites with uh, so many different facets of human history, Earth's history, and, and all these other things. And when you start talking about, wow, this is potentially the impactor uh, that caused the death of the dinosaurs and set the Earth on a completely different evolutionary path. Yeah, that is something. I would find it highly unlikely. And again, I haven't read the article, but when they say they found pieces of the impactor, my guess is that we're talking about teeny tiny pieces and the reason I say that is that this impact was so violent and so huge that everything just vaporized, what, you know, including the earth that was impacted and the impactor itself. They just all completely vaporized. So you're talking about potentially spherules, you know, really small little balls of stuff that may contain some of the original impactor. So that's all possible. And we know there was this impact, by the way. Because at that geologic time, we find a layer of uh, stone or, or, or minerals that are very, very enriched in iridium. And there's no way for that to happen other than through a giant meteor strike. But at the end of the day, this is a phenomenal story, right? It's, it just it engages our our imagination that, wow, here we find a dinosaur that we can, and I'm going to assume there's going to be a lot more science on this before we can say conclusively, but at the very least, we can say, wow, this dinosaur actually died not by predation or old age, but because that's the day the earth was struck by a giant meteor. That kind of boggles the mind and, and it's certainly exciting to think about. But in terms from a collection standpoint, I think I don't know that you would really end up with anything more exciting than what would look like to most people is just a vial of dirt. <laughs> well, listen, hey, people collect dirt from uh, old stadiums, so why not collect um, just some dirt that's that was violent at some point in time? You know, I don't know. I, you know, I, it, it's funny you mentioned that because I I have thought many times, and, and this is speaking as a collector. I've got, well, like, why would people even bother to collect that? And then I have to s sort of be introspective and go, I am sure there's a lot of people that think the exact same thing about me collecting these these weird rocks. So we all have our passions. And uh, the, the beautiful thing is, is that that's what brings uh, an incredible breadth and depth of diversity to our human experience. But uh, if anybody listening out there collects um, stadium dirt, 
please let me know because I want to understand where you're coming from. <laughs> you know, I think it's it's like you said, provenance, right? And you know, who knows who stepped on that dirt, right? And it and it was there. It was in the moment. You'll never get that back. So that's my my thinking. If once they destroy a stadium, right, and they build a new one, you know, that dirt is getting paved over or whatever. And it's, it's not going to be the same. I'll tell you what, though. How about if I make this really interesting and I say that that dirt originally came from meteorites billions of years ago, but everything here on Earth is because of how the Earth formed and and ultimately it is asteroids and meteors and comets and all this other kind of stuff that kind of all aggregated together. And here we are collecting stadium dirt. <laughs> and what you're really doing is collecting meteorites. Correct. Well, that has been highly metamorphosed over time. But yes, uh, I don't know who said this, but, you know, it's the old quote, we are all stardust. Maybe that was Carl Sagan. It's funny, uh, just passing, because in thinking about our, our, our talk here, that's a thought that passed through my, through my mind for a couple minutes. I was like, huh. You know, when you start thinking outside your regular realm, you know, outside your regular workplace and, and things like that. And that's why I enjoy just talking to different people, including yourself, Mendy. We do focus on like fractional investment. And I, I sent you some pictures from from this company, Rally Road. Yes. And, and you know, and they've, they've you know, they kind of revolutionized or they, they uh, you know, brought fractional investment to the mainstream. And, you know, in no way, shape or form am I asking you to, to make a, a comment on, on, the, on the value of it. But we were wondering, I was wondering if you wouldn't mind talking about the lunar meteorite that they have. They, they fractionalize that as an investment. Yeah, I'm quite, I'm quite happy to, actually. I, I think this, this concept of fractional investments is a, is a very intriguing idea. Uh, and what's, what is, I think, would be interesting to your listeners is that it also ties back to one of my original comments regarding the Mona Lisa. So... A fractional investment in something which cannot be subdivided, to me, makes perfect sense, right? But if it can be subdivided, does it still make sense? So, you know, and obviously there's some items that just due to their uniqueness, you may never want to subdivide them. And I'm even talking about meteorites here. Uh, but that particular type of lunar meteorite is is actually one that there has been a, a really large amount found in the last, I'd say, max 10 years. Lunar meteorites used to be incredibly rare. One of the first meteorites, uh, lunar meteorites, was brought to market. It was a small stone. It came from Australia. It sold for, you know, literally anywhere from a, a $100,000 to $10,000 a gram. And, and that's just through time. But that's just, you know, again, supply, demand. The only way you could get a moon rock back then was if you went to the moon. Now we have an abundance of riches. But of course, when you have an abundance of riches, those riches may not seem as special as they used to be. So that particular meteorite you're referring to is a type called a lunar feldspathic breccia. The word breccia is, just means it's a mingling of a whole bunch of different types of rocks. But it also happens to be something fairly common, and you have high-quality uh, feldspathic breccias, and you have 
less interesting, I'll say, lunar feldspathic breccias. But the point is this, that in fact, I, I have in my inventory today, lunar feldspathic breccias that weigh t- around 10 grams. And you could buy that for, we'll say conversationally, uh, $100 a gram. There's no fractional investment here. You pay me the $1,000 for that 10 gram stone, and you get to have a physical piece of the moon in your hand. Now, the, the concept of the fractional lunar meteorite, it's all well and good, but me personally, I would rather actually have a piece than own a piece of paper that gives me ownership to a piece. Because the idea in, in this fractional ownership is that uh, all ships rise and, of course, fall with the tide. Uh, one of the things that's a concept also that's fairly unusual to meteorites, uh, and it's not a steadfast rule, but it is um, a very significant trend, is that the bigger the meteorite, the lower its value per, per gram. So because this particular we'll call it an asset, can be subdivided uh, into smaller chunks. The smaller chunks will cost more than if you buy a big chunk, right? Or if you were to buy the whole thing. So remember that 20-pound lunar meteorite I was talking about? The person who bought it whole can slice it up, uh, subdivide those slices even further, and sell it for a significant profit you know, it's a buy low, sell high, and you're putting additional value into it through preparation and making these smaller pieces available. So, of course, you know, that needs a profit motive to do that. So this particular lunar meteorite, the the idea is that it will go up in value over time. And in my mind, yes, uh, I'm already hearing... Uh, whisperings that fewer lunar meteorites are being found and the price of lunar meteorites is going back up. I mean, there was such a glut in the market that you could buy a lunar meteorite for some pretty common other meteorites there for a while. I don't know when this particular lunar feldspathic breccia was purchased, but, um, you know, because it all depends on what the cost basis is, but certainly the way that it was sold fractionally is what I would call retail prices for what you could have bought an actual piece of very similar meteorite for. So is it a good investment? I don't know. I think the concept is really quite brilliant, but it has to be applied to the right collectible and asset class in order for it to make sense. And like I said, artwork, yeah, you can't subdivide that. So having a fractional ownership in, let's say, a Monet uh, would make perfect sense if that was available, but it may not make as much sense in that particular kind of meteorite. It could make a whole lot more sense for a very sculptural meteorite that would never get subdivided. So again, any investor has to really understand what they're investing in in order for it to be something more than just, hey, look, isn't it cool? I, 
Here, let me show you a picture of my fractional investment in this thing. And I think, you know, again, education, 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 research, research, research. And that's how you can make intelligent investment decisions. Absolutely. And you mentioned a few things. And one of the first things you said, you know, as as the, the supply increased, you know, more of them are, are being discovered. And I'm thinking, well, one way that you can grow it without increasing the supply, you know, if it continues to increase, one way you can kind of maintain the value or maybe even increase the value is by growing the hobby, right? Or by growing the the number of collectors that are out there to uh, maybe create more demand. I'm kind of wondering if, you know, by having a picture of, a, you know, having this lunar meteorite up on this platform, that it can maybe possibly, you know, spark some interest because where else can you buy, I guess, a, a portion of a fraction of a, of a meteorite? Well, that's easy. You can buy it from me. <laughs> <laughs> um, all, all kidding aside, well, actually, serious and kidding at, at the same time. Look, here's the way I, I think it's it's very critical that whatever we need to do to energize and excite people towards science, it's all good. You know, it's like the old saying: "There's no such thing as as uh, bad press." It's sort of the same concept here that. If we can raise awareness that you can, in fact, own rocks that fell from space, and some of those rocks are something as visceral and as close to human humans as just looking up in the sky and seeing, I own a piece of that thing, that the moon, I own a piece of it. That is relatable by everyone. And so if that means that it ignites a passion or even a, an interest in geology uh, or some other scientific discipline, it is absolutely worthwhile. Your listeners and the reason for you to have this podcast is about investments. So if we just choose that narrow perspective, I would say for me personally, because I'm not here to give any investment advice to, to anybody. But for me personally, I think that there are better avenues. If you want to spend money on meteorites, there's better ways of doing so. Fair enough. Yeah. And all these little intricacies that you talked about, you know, knowing the market, knowing if you actually have a smaller piece, you know, that you can actually sell it more per gram. All that stuff isn't common sense, you know, or it, it doesn't come natural. You wouldn't think that. Mendy, as always, this this was highly informational, really great. Uh, I kind of just want to leave it off with open ended, right? What are your your musings, you know, on, on 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 meteorite collecting right now? Are there any other events that you're looking to attend, and um, are there any meteorites that you're even eyeing that that you think you'd you'd be interested in kind of adding to your collection? If you don't mind talking about that, no, not at all. In June, I'll be heading to the Alsace region of France. Uh, for one of my favorite meteorite-only shows in a town called Ensisheim. Um, that's really a, it's, it's an international show, though mostly a lot of European uh, dealers, you know, Eastern European. I'll be curious to see if some of our Russian dealer friends will be able to come. But a wonderful show, very uh, familiar 
and and friendly and we have a really good time it's a three-day show basically and and then in august i'll be heading to the meteoritical society conference so this is the scientific conference that happens in glasgow uh this year i should say happens in glasgow it, it changes cities all the time and uh, looking forward to seeing all of my friends uh, who are researchers and scientists the thing about meteorites is that if you're really focused on collecting one thing, you have to wait a long time and I have no such patience. So I tend to be very um, in the moment. It's like, oh, well, that's a meteorite that if it wasn't on my list, it should be on my list. So I'm going to get that. But of course, I do that in, in a thoughtful uh, way because, you know, as a meteorite dealer and collector, I don't want to pay more for something than I should. And I want to know also that it has good resale value. And then sort of one of the last, uh, as you call them, musings that I have is that one of my passions is uh, really trying to spread the the love and interest uh, in, in collecting meteorites. And as such, I, about a, a little bit over a year ago, I founded a new organization called the Global Meteorite Association. It's www.gmeta.org. And, you know, our goal is uh, education, outreach, uh, ensuring that our members adhere to a code of ethics and a code of conduct and guidelines to ensure authenticity of meteorites. Uh, we plan on, like I said, doing a lot of outreach to people. So, it kind of ties back into your comment about using the, the fractional meteorite as a way of engaging people's uh, minds. I just want to get more people involved in, in collecting meteorites. It's, it's not just good for the meteorite community, but it's also really good for science. We learn so much about how our solar system, galaxy, and universe, how it works through through meteorites, that by growing the hobby, uh, we can also potentially engage new new minds that uh, will become, you know, really important researchers in the field of meteoritics. So there, there's just a lot of benefits to doing so. And I'm really excited about this particular journey that uh, we are on with the Global Meteorite Association to try and really do a, a lot of grand things. And, you know, I like to think big and accomplish bigger. So that for me is uh, definitely a big, big to do item on my list. That's awesome. If you guys can get in touch with him, uh, Mendy, like you mentioned, you were the, the president, the founder and president of the, uh, the Global Meteorite Association. And also, uh, you know, get in touch with you through your website, skyfallmeteorites.com which we'll also have, you know, on our podcast so people can reach out. Mendy, I'm going to reach out to you in a couple months again, man, and I'm going to have to have you back, talk about those shows, and, and, and I'm, going to have, I'm going to have more questions for you, okay? You know what? You get have more questions, I'll have more answers. Just you got to put up with my rambling occasionally, but it's uh, fun as always, and I'm really, really glad we had a chance to have this follow-up conversation. Same. Thank you very much, Mendy. Take care, uh, safe travels, and we'll, we'll keep in touch. Super. Same to you. Bye. That was another great talk with Mendy. It's really a pleasure listening to an expert talk carefully and honestly about their expertise. 
If you have any meteorite related questions, are interested in the hobby, or just want to learn more, Mendy would be happy to speak with you. I'd like to thank him for coming on the podcast again, and I'm looking forward to getting him on the podcast in the future to hear about his travels in France and Glasgow. And I'd like to thank you for spending part of your day with Alts. If you enjoyed listening to the podcast, let others know about it or leave a review or a comment. Until the next episode, take care.